Hi, I'm Bobby Gill. Uh, I'm the creator of the Word Hack app, and you are listening to the App Guy podcast. The App Guy podcast. Straight from your host, Paul, the App Guy. Sharing his app entrepreneur journey with you for your enjoyment. The App Guy Podcast. And now, Paul, the App Guy. Welcome to another episode of the App Guy Podcast. It's me, your host. I'm Paul Kemp. And this is the show where we get inspiring founders and entrepreneurs and business owners, anyone who can really give us their journey to inspire us to do great things with apps and with our businesses. So uh, if you're listening and you've yet to start your own business or your own app uh, entrepreneurial journey, then uh, this will inspire you. If you've already started and you're on your journey, then this will inspire you anyway, because it's great to be able to hear what others are doing and uh, we've got a great guest lined up for us to inspire us tonight. Uh, his name is Dylan Kyle, and he is from uh, San Francisco, which is where all the action is with regards to app development and mobile. Uh, Dylan is the fa- co-founder of uh, Kronos. And uh, if you just type in uh, Kronos, C-H-R-O-N-O-S, uh, it's a very unique name. Put that into Google, you'll see uh, their website and all the stuff that they're doing. Now, this is an app to help you understand where your time goes so that you can spend it doing the things that we love. So what a great idea. What a great co-founder. Dylan, what a warm welcome to you on the App Guy podcast. Well, thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me here. Excited to talk about it. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into your journey. So before we start talking about the app, perhaps you can give us a little bit of your background. Give us an introduction to yourself and what it is. Yeah, great. So I'm from the U.S., originally grew up in the Northeast. Okay. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm from the U.S., originally grew up in the Northeast, uh, came out to Stanford University for undergrad and actually studied mechanical engineering, working on a couple early-stage startups more in a mechanical engineering type role. So I actually worked for one early-stage startup that was focused on integrating sensors into mobile devices and really developing some of the initial software around that. So I did that, spent some time kind of experimenting with the startup field, then kind of got this idea in my head that if I really wanted to be, if I wanted to be able to build my own vision versus just kind of impl- implementing someone else's vision, I would need some sort of a business background. So I actually went and worked in consulting for two years in New York, um, did that for a while, realized that I wanted to get back in the engineering side of things. So came back to grad school at Stanford uh, and actually met my co-founder while I was in grad school. And then really in the second year of grad school, we started working on this idea, experimenting with some different different ideas eventually settled on Kronos and started working on that full-time after graduation. So that's an, a fascinating story, and it's amazing that uh, you you were so prepared in the steps you took. You kind of knew that you wanted to uh, do your own thing, but rather than, like many of us, making the mistake that we kind of jump in maybe too early, you set yourself a goal of uh, learning about business. Well, what type of consulting was it you were getting into in New York? So I was doing uh, management consulting. I was working for McKinsey in New York. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know it very well. My wife works for Accenture and uh, she uh, works with a lot of ex-McKinsey's and uh, very uh, astute uh, to get into a McKinsey. I think it's a fascinating ground for learning. Uh, in terms of, uh, so you, you met your co-founder. We know the importance of uh, having a great co-founder. Perhaps you can just give us some insight into why uh, you both ended up uh, you know, realizing that you wanted to work together. 
Yeah, no, I think I think the really important thing to start with was both of us were very interested in starting a company. I think both of us were very excited about the idea of creating a new product and passionate about working at a startup full-time, not just as a hobby, not, not just as something that we do for a month or two and give up, but as something we actually stick with. So I think that was important to start with. Then it was also just finding that we could work well together. and We had a similar vision in terms of how we would work on a day-to-day basis, but also how we would work longer term in terms of do we want to build a big company here? Do we want to you know, build something quickly and sell it quickly? Or do we want to actually you know, feel like we're fully invested in this thing? Um, so I think those are some of the good components. And then I think the final part of it is just making sure that you have complementary skill sets and that you really are able to bring both unique things to the table that can add to each other and ultimately you know, de- deliver a product between the two of you. And so I uh, myself had some of the engineering. Uh, my co-founder, Charlie, had spent time working on the calendar team at Google and had also spent time studying psychology and spent some time doing product management. So spot, spent a lot of time thinking about user design and user experience and had also had some design experience as well. So he kind of brought a lot of the product sense and a lot of uh, the thinking around how to design the product um, and I brought some more of the technical background. And combined, that really allowed us to get a product out of the door pretty quickly. I mean, that's fascinating. So did you go through any uh, programs? Like, was it an incubator? Was there a, a meetup at the uh, university? You know, was there anything that, or was it just over a few drinks in the bar? I mean, how did you end up sort of both realizing? Yeah, I mean, so we, yeah, so we, I mean, we both, I can had initially been talking about doing this during the, the first year of our program. And I think just kind of met up through that just because we both had expressed interest in entrepreneurship. And so our initial connection was, was really just through the fact that it was a small enough community and both of us knew that we were interested in doing some sort of a startup. And I think we each had independently been working on ideas related to the space that weren't ultimately the final idea. And so through that, we kind of got together, started bouncing these ideas off of each other and figured, okay, like what can we, what can we take away from each of our ideas and what can we build on to make this something that we actually both really want to work on going forward? So I think that was the initial start of it. Once we got together and actually decided to start a company, at that point we went through uh, an incubator program. So we originally were in uh, Dogpatch Labs, which was uh, kind of a, a very hands-off incubator based out of Palo Alto, where they gave you free office space and had you in a community of other startups. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily the same model where you have mentors constantly coming in or you know someone holding your hand throughout the whole process. Um, but that was kind of what we did as a first step. Yeah, we'd love to learn a little bit more about the incubators sort of b- before we get into your, your actual um, idea, because uh, uh, many of us have had a lot of listeners who have come back from previous episodes learning about incubators, and I think we're still a little bit unclear. Do they actually end up um, taking a share of your company? Um, you know, what, what's the arrangement when you go through an incubator? Yeah, so there, there are a lot of different types of incubators. So um, on, on one end, there are incubators which will basically function as a bit of an investment arm. So they will give you some small amount of money, usually in exchange for quite a large chunk of your company. So maybe that's you know $20,000 for 7% of your company, or maybe it's a little bit more money for a little bit less. But the, the deal that you're getting is typically not that great, but it's kind of seen as you know that's the first money in. They're taking the biggest risk on you, so that's why they kind of get that, those better terms. So that might be one component they bring to the table. A second component oftentimes is free office space. So something like a Y Combinator doesn't do free office space, but something like a 500 Startups does. Um, uh, A third component could be mentorship. So most incubators typically have something where they'll have either connected entrepreneurs or investors or, you know, someone who would have relevant expertise in a larger company come in and talk to the startups 
and kind of explain some of the you know errors they've had in the past and some of the things they've learned. And then the final component is just this community aspect where you're interacting with other startups. Uh, and so on one hand, you have some incubators that have you know maybe only one of those four components. So for example, Dogpatch Labs really just had the kind of community aspect of interacting with the other startups and it had some of the free office space, but it didn't have the money and it didn't really have the mentorship network. Uh, if you do a 500 startups type program, that tends to have really all four of those components. Um, and, you know, there are a bunch of other incubators that kind of fall in between there. Yeah, and and I, guess, I guess there's the, like a vetting process as well that you have to go through to get in in the first place. Yeah, I mean, so the, the big reasons you want to do an incubator as a startup, and honestly, the, the main reason you want to do an incubator as a startup is because of the vetting process and the stamp approval that gives you. Um, I mean, I think there is definitely some benefit for, for mentorship and definitely some benefit potentially from the funding if you really are strapped for cash. But honestly, the real reason you do that, especially something like a Y Combinator or a uh, 500 startups is because it gives you a, somewhat of a stamp of approval saying that, you know, out of the thousand applicants, you were one of the top 50 or the 5,000, you were the top 50. And I think because of that, when you then go and try to raise around eight weeks later or three months later, you're in a much better position because, you know, investors know that you're not just a random company that hasn't done anything before. They know that you've at least been approved or vetted by one, you know, one level of experts in the field already and because yeah. of that they're gonna be much more willing to invest in. <laughs> it's it's i guess it's a bit of a game of risk because it's good if you get approved but if you don't get approved i'm sure that that comes out as well um, I, I don't know if that's transparent yeah, or not think, but uh, it's to be fair like it's, it's it's not very transparent as to who applies for these things so it's not like if you apply to it that you kind of have the next time you meet with an investor you have to say oh by the way we didn't get into this incubator so I, I think that's a pretty low risk option to apply. I think the only really downside is just the fact that it does take a little bit of time. But I mean, I would, you know, I would recommend for people to apply. I think the important thing to remember, though, is that if you apply once and your application is not great, you can apply again in the future. But if you can wait one cycle, you know, three or four months and actually have a much stronger application, actually be able to show some growth, be able to have a full team in place, things like that, you're going to be in a better position to get into the program and better position to make a you know a first impression on the people that are actually reviewing your application uh, that's fascinating thank you so much for like sharing that because uh, i know that 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 inspires a lot of people so let's get into the idea let's get into the app chronos uh, perhaps you can talk us through what it does and uh, how it's yeah. going to change our uh, how it's going to change our lives yeah absolutely so the kind of initial uh, impetus behind the product and the initial thinking here was that we recognize that you know time is your most valuable resource so People track their weight, they track their finances, there's all these other things that people care about in their lives, but at the end of the day, what truly is most important is, is how you spend your time. And you know, you can see this in the regrets that people have when they tend to get older, when it's, whether it's, I wish I'd spent more time with my family, or I wish I'd spent more time with, with friends, or less time working, or more time doing things that I love. You kind of get these re recurring themes where people understand that what really matters in their life is, is where they're spending their hours in the day. So on one hand, I think we saw that, that most people recognize this. And on the other hand, we saw that while people recognize this, very few people actually track where their time goes. So unlike their finances or unlike other parts of their life, they don't track on a weekly or monthly or even daily basis where those hours in the week are going. So it's actually very common for someone to feel really busy, feel like they're doing a lot, get to the end of the week, get to Friday, and suddenly realize they don't have a sense of where all those hours in the week have gone. So that's kind of the problem as we saw it. And part of the reason that problem has persisted for so long was we saw that 
it's actually very difficult to track your time manually. It requires a pen and a paper, and it just it's not something that most people are going to do. It's just because if it takes 15 minutes to write down everything you've done during the course of the day, that's just prohibitive to most folks. So we saw this problem, and we saw kind of this barrier that had existed just because technology couldn't really tackle it. And at the same time, we saw that really in the last 18 months, two years, the devices that we carry around of us, namely our smartphones, have gotten more intelligent, and the sensors on them have gotten better about being able to pull in data passively. And so we actually are finally in a position where we're actually able to passively capture all this information about how you're spending your life and spending your time. And because of that, we're able to really solve this problem of understanding where your time goes and making better decisions for a much wider audience, for the average person that doesn't want to spend 15 minutes collecting and chronicling their life. So what the app does is it basically runs in the background on your phone. You download it, put it in your pocket, forget about it. And what it's going to do is it's going to pull in your location data, your accelerometer data, pretty much anything else we can get from the phone. And it's going to do all of this passively and automatically. So once it pulls all this information in, it's going to analyze that and try to figure out where you are, what you're doing, who you're with. Uh, and ultimately, it's going to tie that all in to what your goals are. So you can go in and you can see, here's the amount of time I spent exercising, here's the amount of time I spent sleeping, commuting, hanging out with specific friends. And then in the second part of the app, we actually let you set goals against that. So you can go in and say, I want to go to bed before midnight. I want to leave the office by 5. I want to make sure that I work for 10 hours each day this week. I want to make sure that I see at least two friends today. And what we'll do is we'll run in the background and you know prompt you to actually accomplish these goals. So whether that's congratulating you because you went to the gym or reminding you to leave the office because it's 5 p.m. and we want to make sure you can get home soon. Uh, and then the final component of what we do is we recognize that it's not just where you spend your time, but it is who you spend your time with. So we let users actually see how they spend their time with specific people and track those relationships and how they change over time. What an amazing idea. And I mean, congratulations to actually bring in the world such a fantastic app. I mean, I've been using uh, something called Rescue Time on my Mac, and it's changed the way I work uh, just simply from tracking the, the you know the, the areas of where I'm spending different times on my Mac. Mac, and so in terms of tracking a life, I mean, I, I tried to do that a few years ago. I tried to um, you know seg segment my life in 15 minute segments and uh, record all the different things I was doing, and it lasted for about two weeks, and then I. Yeah, I don't know what happened to that piece of paper, but it was, uh, yeah. and so I can, no, I, I I can see the benefit funny. of it's, it. It's funny. I think, I think a lot of people have tried to do that because I think they've recognized, you know, I, I want to know what I'm doing. I want to have some understanding of where, where my hours are going. And I think it's just, it's, it's way too hard. And the problem is once you, once you stop doing it and once that data set's incomplete, the barrier to start again becomes higher. And, and most people will do it for a couple of weeks or a month and kind of give up. And I think what's exciting about this is that, you know, we're not trying to go after people that are really trying to, manage and optimize every second of their day or every minute of their day. We're trying to say for people that care more about 80, 85 plus percent accurate, those are the people we really want to target where it's kind of this lightweight solution that's not necessarily going to dive into are you in REM sleep right now or regular sleep, but it's going to say things like on average you slept six and a half hours last week, you know, don't you want to try shooting for eight? So we give very kind of directional guidance at, at a higher level. And because we're able to do that, we're able to offer it as a, as a more lightweight solution. That doesn't require the user to come in and manually type things in or tweak their data or, you know, wear an expensive piece of hardware on, their, on themselves. Yeah, I mean, in terms of just the way apps are going, I mean, you know, Lyft, Everest, these are two apps that I've started using quite heavily. And it definitely changes your habits because you become more aware of uh, where you're spending your time and, and what what habits you're trying to focus on, and and just having the personal you know the personal touch of an iPhone or 
uh, I guess it's an Android uh, app as well. Um, so let's talk about like um, the, how you actually, I mean, it's a great idea then. So uh, did you code the stuff yourself? Um, did you end up appointing a, a, a external developers to start the coding process? You know, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so the, the initial development, um, so I did the iOS development and the initial backend. And eventually, uh, I still do all the iOS development and some of the backend. We actually hired a, an employee to come out and help out with the backend. So currently, our team is now three people. So it's myself, my co-founder, Charlie, and a developer that we hired named Dave. And so in terms of the distribution of work now, I'll do uh, the iOS side, some of the backend, and Dave will do some of the other backend, and then Charlie will do the design work. One of the things uh, that I'm often asked is, what's it like to be the co-founder of a fascinating startup like yourself? And the way we try and explore that is to try and get a sense of what it's like, you know, in terms of your typical day. Now, I'm guessing there's not a typical day, but would you be able to try and give us some guidance? Or, uh, what's what's it like to, you know, be a, a co-founder and uh, some, you know, an average day? Would you be able to talk us through what's it like? In, yeah, an sure. Day? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I, I think exactly as you said, there's there's not necessarily a typical day. I think there are a variety of days depending on kind of where you are in the product cycle, whether you're fundraising or whether you're trying to launch a product or whether you're, you know, kind of bug fixing. But I would say, in, in general, the you know, the day kind of breaks itself into a number of buckets. For me, I, I, I tend to start fairly late because I tend to stay up pretty late. Um, <laughs> so I'll get in and, you know, obviously just do things like answer off emails and things like that pretty quickly um, and probably spend the majority of my time if we are working on product developing. And so during that, that does mean I spend a lot of time, you know, in Xcode, cranking away on our latest features and trying to develop new things on the app. Um, but interspersed with that, we also have time where we come together as a group and, you know, maybe we'll mock up a feature or we'll test out a feature and then we'll kind of sit down as the three of us and say, what do, what do we think about that? And we'll actually kind of, you know, try to bounce ideas off each other and make sure that we're kind of going in the right direction. And then we'll kind of go back and spend some more time working on the code itself. Uh, on top of that, there's a lot of this kind of overhead that I think you have in startups that you don't necessarily have in a large organization. If you're an engineer at Big organization, oftentimes they go to great lengths to make sure that all you ever have to worry about is coding. Whereas I think if you're at a startup, you have to worry about things like taxes and payroll and, you know, working with the lawyers to make sure that things are coming in smoothly and making sure that your office is, the rent is being paid for that. A lot of just small details that you wouldn't necessarily have to worry about if you were in a large organization. And I think part of the challenge of, of working at a startup is being able to, to multitask, not necessarily multitask, but jump between tasks very quickly. Um, and be able to do that while still maintaining focus and being productive. And I think, you know, for example, for myself, I found that oftentimes I'm most productive when working late in the evening just because at that point I'm not getting an email or I'm not getting, uh, there's not something else on my to-do list that's not related to actually product development or related to developing something. So that's kind of what we do internally. On top of that, we're also, you know, talking to users. So we'll try to schedule one-on-one -on -one interviews with random users just to get feedback from people that aren't aren't us because sometimes it's hard to get, you know, unbiased feedback when you're just talking to yourselves. Um, and then we'll also oftentimes schedule meetings with people that we think could help us, who either people that are our mentors who have worked in this space before that can give us advice on the product, uh, potential investors who we think potentially might want to invest in the company, um, or, you know, maybe partners, people that we think have technology that's exciting and interesting that we potentially could either use with Kronos or that they could use our Kronos technology and their product and see if there's some way that we could, you know, work together in that sense. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's kind of a a long and non-super structured way of describing what a typical <laughs> day is like. But I but I do think that it 
it honestly is pretty variable. I kind of put ballpark, you know, if I'm working on product development stuff, maybe 70% of the time is spent in development. Um, and that includes, you know, talking through architecture, for example, with Dave and things like that. Maybe, you know, 10% of the time is spent just kind of at a higher level talking about some product decision ideas. And then 20% is probably spent on things like overhead in terms of, you know, again, HR, legal, things like that, that are probably, you know, less exciting. Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, we have listeners uh, who are currently in employment uh, for corporations. And one of the reasons for being an app developer or uh, working for your, a startup is the uh, excitement of getting involved in more things. Um, I guess the downside is like, you know, compared to your time at McKinsey, you do have less resources uh, at hand. Uh, but in terms of the excitement of an average day, then I'm sure it's much more fulfilling uh, having the freedom. Would you say you have more freedom now than when you were working at McKinsey or your co-founder? Yeah, working yeah at I mean, so definitely, I think definitely compared to, so I, I think definitely compared to a traditional job or a, a job in a large organization, you definitely have more freedom in the sense that you can, to a certain degree, determine your own schedule. You can, if you need to, you know, have, if you have an appointment at 1 p.m. in the middle of the afternoon and you don't have a meeting, like you, you can make sure that you can go to that appointment. Or you can say, you know, this is something I want to work on, and because of that, I'm going to work on this today versus work on that, you know, on Thursday because my boss wants it on Thursday. So I think there's definitely, definitely more flexibility, definitely more freedom. I think the countervailing force to that is that there's more work. I think there's just an unlimited amount of work. So it, it's not in the sense of I have an assignment, and once I finish my assignment, I'm done. I can go home and kind of check out. I think there's always just more stuff you can do, and I think the challenge is trying to say, you know, what's the smallest amount of that stuff I can do and how do I kind of force myself to stop working and tell myself when, when you know, good enough is good enough. Um, and so I think there definitely is a tension between, you know, feeling like you want to do as much as you possibly can, but also recognizing that you, you know, can't work 17 hours every day. And if you do that, you're not going to be sustainable. Uh, and so I think there definitely is this ability of being able to have control and structure and being able to implement that into your own life. Uh, and I think on, on top of that, there's also, you know, the, the fact that because you are in a, you know, small team, you have to be able to figure out, you know, what's the best way that we can work as a team. So we want to make sure that I'm in the office at the same time that Charlie and Dave are in the office and we can't, you know, obviously we can work remotely to some, some of the time, but we do want to be able to be there and collaborate at the same time. And we need to have something that somewhat resembles regular business hours if we're going to be with other people. Um, so there are some constraints placed on it in that sense. I mean, it's just fascinating to hear you go through that. I'm sure that actually your app is coming in quite handy in terms of your own uh, schedule. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think the, I think the the irony of this the, the app itself is that, of course, it it's meant to encourage work life balance and encourage you to be balanced and spend less time. <laughs> you know, holding the app itself is probably the most I've ever worked in my whole life, and we can see that, like, you know, if there's if there's ever a threat to the app, it's the app will be so successful at convincing us that we're spending too much time building the app that we'll stop building the app and do something different. Uh, but, <laughs> well, yeah, what what can we do to? Uh, what I was going to ask you, and what can we do to um, help you in terms of? Uh, I mean, so you said that you reach out to certain individuals. Can people download the app and reach out to you and uh, you know give you feedback? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for us, we're right now. What we've done to date is, I think, built an interesting technology. I think the product as it stands now obviously has a lot of things that we want to improve and change, and it's really just a function of we're a small team and we can only move so fast. Um, 
But getting feedback from users is incredibly helpful. You know, we can come up with our own ideas as what works and what's a good idea sitting on a whiteboard, but it's it's much more helpful to actually hear people that didn't build a product or didn't, you know, haven't been knee deep in the code for the last whatever to be able to actually tell us what works and what what doesn't work. And so very helpful for us is people download it, they can write in, they can reach out to us really any way they can and let us know what they like, what they don't like, what they wish it could do. And because of that, we're going to be able to hopefully, you know, tailor the product and improve it going forward. Uh, for us, we're very much about kind of iterating the product and trying to improve it based on feedback. And I think we are definitely in the, uh, in, in the camp of get stuff out there as quickly as possible, even if it's a little bit broken or doesn't totally work, um, just because a lot of what you're going to do at a startup is throw work away. And it's better to throw work away when it's you know 80% good versus when it's 100% good and took you five times as long to build. Um, so that's definitely our philosophy. And so the more feedback we can get, the better. Yeah, we, we had a previous guest who put a Q&A uh, tab into the app that he was working on, in fact, four apps that he had. And he said it was one of the best things he did because it gave uh, feedback you know, pretty quickly within the app. How are you getting feedback? I guess people are signing up and so that you're getting a, a list, that you're building a list, and then you can randomly email people. Or uh, you know, how, do you, how do you actually yeah, I mean, approach I think there's, the I think users? There's, there, there, there's varying degrees of feedback. So I think at the least personalized level, there is basically metrics we can get from the app itself. So with tracking software, so whether we use Flurry and Mixpanel and a number of other services that will help us track when people open the app, which buttons they click, the, the flow that they take within the app. So if they open the app on screen X and then they go to screen Y and then they press you know, button one, how often does that happen and you know, what does that trail off look like when someone stops using the app? So that's kind of the, the first kind of set of metrics we get on a user. And those are probably the most widespread for, for a startup and usually the easiest to, to kind of measure changes against. So if we add a new feature, we can measure whether or not engagement has gone up or down uh, based on those kind of metrics. So that's bucket one. Bucket two is things like sending out kind of email surveys or you know, Google surveys to some of the people who use the app and there we'll kind of just randomize it and try to do some cohort analysis and say for people that are active users, for people that are you know, not very active users, for people that are new users, how do they respond to these various questions we have? That's you know, slightly more helpful because we can get some uh, you know, qualitative metrics that we wouldn't necessarily be able to get with kind of the tracking software. But really the most helpful thing is sitting down one-on-one -on -one with someone and having a face-to-face -face meeting where we can actually watch them walk through the app and see how they use it. And so for that, what we'll do is we'll reach out to people, offer to buy them coffee, tell them you know, we want to meet up in San Francisco at this coffee shop for 30 minutes and just get their feedback on the app. And go in with a very kind of loose agenda, but have them kind of guide us through how they use it and what they think about it. And I think what's really helpful there is being able to see things that you really can't capture necessarily with some of those, uh, with some with some of the tracking software that's out there. Just kind of understanding their intent and why they didn't click a button because maybe they, it was a funny color that they didn't quite understand, or uh, you know what they're how looking at how their finger moves over the screen and how it hesitates before it actually clicks on something. It can be helpful to understand, you know, why it takes them, you know, four or five seconds to go from one page to the next page. Uh, so that was definitely the most helpful thing. It's the hardest to do and the most time intensive. Um, but I think having a combination of those three tracking techniques, whether it's the, you know, automated, the kind of more impersonal surveys or the personal one-on-one, -on -one, uh, is helpful to really understanding what resonates with the users and what doesn't. Yeah, as we're getting towards the end, I want to make sure that um, we 
uh, get into the marketing of the app because one of the founders that we we had on the show a while ago said that it's uh, sometimes a little bit demoralizing in that you know they were spending a year and a half building uh, what was an awesome app and is an awesome app right now called Square One Mail but in terms of the launch day uh, there was not a lot of the uh, tech press that picked up on it because um, there's just s- such an abundance of apps and it's really hard to get through the noise. Uh, how challenging do you th- do you find the marketing of the app? Uh, are you focusing more on its organic growth or are, are you trying to also, you know, get, get um, sort of raise your hand and, and get noticed by the tech press? And, and how important is that? Yeah, I mean... I- I think ultimately for most apps, you really kind of have to rely on organic growth unless you're an app that's really focused on transactions and you can do a clear, you know, for every the cost of acquisition per customer is X and we can, the lifetime value of the customer is Y and we can therefore early on agree to spend money on customers and, you know, bootstrap it that way. I think for 90% of the consumer facing apps out there, you're not going to be in that bucket. You're going to be somewhere where you really need to have an app that can stand on its own and through word of mouth, through viral features through something that's actually built into the mechanics of the app itself, it's going to spread that way. And, you know, that said, it, it does help to have basically a seed to have a, uh, a population of a certain number of people that are already using the app just so it can spread more quickly. If you start with five people, even if it's a viral app, it's going to take a while to get it big. Uh, and so I think that's where things like TechPress and being able to get some visibility Initially, a launch can be helpful. Uh, I think for us, we've been pretty fortunate. Just you know, when we launched this back in August, you know, we got you know TechCrunch and Lifehacker and a bunch of other uh, publications to write about us, and that definitely did give a little bit of a bump. I think oftentimes those users are not the best users because they're people that just found out about it and read the headline, but they're not necessarily people that would search for it on their own. So I think they're more likely to try it out for you know five or ten seconds and say this looks cool, but I don't necessarily want to keep on using it. Uh, and it's also true that that's not really a sustainable bump. That's something that comes up quickly and then also goes away, you know, the second the, the article's over. So I think that's a, that's a fine way to get noticed and a fine way to kind of get that initial group of users. But I think it's a really poor strategy to uh, rely on for long-term growth. I think the same goes true for App Store features or really any of that stuff. Um, unless you have a very clear model that, you know, shows that you're able to acquire a customer and, and monetize them incredibly quickly, it has to come down to something where people either like it so much they tell their friends or where the actual functionality of the app requires them having their friends on it. Yeah, no, I think that's the, the one thing we're learning from this podcast is that uh, you, you can almost like buy, uh, you know, upfront interest and uh, get, get some, I guess, interest from the, the tech press. But all, the, all of that goes away pretty quickly. And uh, what, what some of the startups have decided to do is just focus on a real core uh, group of people, their niche and uh, really focus on making it the best app for that that, that small group of people. I think even one app was just focusing on one high influential person. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, once you've got it perfect for, you know, there is a viral impact uh, because then, you know, people can love it. Yeah, I mean, you can see there's a lot of examples of apps that have basically just bought ads and moved themselves up to the number one slot in the iTunes store for a week. And, you know, that works for a little time and they'll, they'll stay up there and they'll kind of slowly trickle down through the top 10 and top 25 just because once you're up there, you have more visibility. But for most of those apps, if you kind of track the rankings, if you go to things like Center Tower or some of these other sites, you can track their rankings. Over the course of two or three weeks, it completely drops off. And that and that's an expensive buy too. So I think that's, I think it's like not a very good strategy. I think it's, if you're trying to fundraise and you're able to con- <laughs> trick investors and tell them that you're number one on the app store, like maybe that's worthwhile. Um, 
But I think ultimately, unless you have a lot of cash to burn, I think it's a really poor strategy. Yeah, that's, that's terrific advice. So um, before we say goodbye, then, what, what is the best way of reaching out to you, Dylan? You've inspired me. I'm going to be using your app uh, from now on. I love the idea. I think it's terrific. And it's, you know, if that helps me spend more time with my kids or uh, just get more sleep, <laughs> then I'm, uh, I'm going to love this app. So uh, uh, how, anyway, how best can we reach out and connect with you? Yeah, so I mean, we are uh, the, the website itself is getchronos.com. And if you want to reach out to, to my email address, it's dylan, D Y L A N, at getchronos.com. Uh, and if you have any kind of feedback or suggestions on the app itself, definitely just shoot over a note to support at getchronos.com. And, you know, we'll, we would love to hear from you. And yeah, we're, we're excited to kind of build the build the future of contextual awareness for applications that really understands how you spend your time and helps you make better decisions and i think a large part of that is going to be the feedback we get from users and the the guidance we get from users so excited to work with folks on that oh, i mean what a fascinating story you've taken us from you know like the start all the way through and and the work you're doing now it's just absolutely fantastic so um really do appreciate you joining us and just a, a, in terms of the type of phone does it have to be the iphone 5s with the m chip is is that uh, necessary no it, it doesn't i mean any 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 iphone will do it uh we the with the 5s you get step counting added in, included because the m7 chip makes it super easy to do that but any iphone can can work with the application great you should you should be running ios 7 though because it does make it uh much more efficient terrific okay well I, i'm downloading it as we speak and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, having it uh what a wonderful guest, Dylan. You've been uh, you know, terrific with your time. Thanks so much for joining us on the App Guy podcast. If there's anything we can do to help you as a community, then please let us know. But it just leaves me to say goodbye for now, and you're welcome back. Uh, I feel like we've we've had an interview, and you know, um, who knows where Cronus uh, will be in a couple of years' time? But it you know it could be the next uh, uh, next big thing. And uh, this is we've got you early. Great. Well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Wonderful talking to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode. If you want to be a guest on the show or suggest someone, then please send an email to info at onemob.com. The App Guy Podcast.